Washington Post broke major news Monday night with a report that President Trump revealed highly classified information to the Russian foreign minister and ambassador. The news spread quickly, prompting statements from the White House and a public response from Trump's national security advisor, H.R. McMaster. Which brings us to now. For the second week in a row in a special break-in episode, here is where we come in. This is Can He Do That? A podcast that explores the powers and limitations of the American presidency. I'm Allison Michaels. One note to our listeners, as you have probably realized by now, I have a cold. But alas, news waits for no one, so bear with me. I promise it will be worth it. In part, because here in the studio, I have one of the reporters who broke this huge story, my award-winning, very talented colleague, Greg Jaffe. Greg, I know this is an incredibly busy time for you. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. So, Greg, let's start with what exactly happened here. Can you just walk us through what your reporting and and the reporting of Greg Miller alongside you revealed happened at a meeting between Trump and two Russian diplomats at the White House last week? Sure, right. The Russian foreign minister and the Russian ambassador were uh, in the Oval Office with with the president last week, and they were talking about a particular threat coming from Syria. And then the president shared information that that was highly classified. Now, it wasn't sources or methods. But um, the nature of the information could sort of allow one to sort of potentially reverse engineer those sources and methods. It also came from a partner nation. And so uh, it wasn't our intelligence to share. And that partner nation in the past has been concerned about our inability to keep secrets. And so it would be particularly upsetting to them. So what happens after this meeting occurs? You know, what happens after this meeting occurs is the White House, uh, the National Security Council, realizes that President Trump has, has shared things that he probably weren't wise to share. And so uh, a message uh, goes out to the uh, NSA, National Security Agency, and the CIA to let them know. An internal memo uh, that that is a sort of a summary of the call is sort of scrubbed of that classified information. And um, the transcripts of the the meeting, which, you know, usually go out in some level of dissemination are kept tightly uh, controlled as well. Got it. So I'm going to get to the main can he do that question first here, because it's actually something you addressed in your story, which is, can the president share intelligence regardless of classification with whomever he wants? Yes, he can. Yeah. He's got the the ultimate sort of declassification authority, as they say. So, you know, it's up to him to use that information as he thinks is, is most wise. I guess the question in this case is, is whether it was wise. Right. So even though he can, it might not be a good idea. I've heard the term used now, lawful but awful. <laughs> um, so the question to you really is, well, what's at risk by sharing this information? You know, a couple of things I think are at risk. The most immediate thing, I think, is that the partner uh, who shared the in- intelligence, who wouldn't have wanted it shared with the Russians uh, in this particular case, will be upset and will no longer continue to share information as they had, and that other partners might react accordingly. And so the U.S. has a great intelligence collection capability, probably the best in the world, but it depends heavily on sort of allies and partners for additional information, and so you compromise that flow. The other thing is, you know, um, you potentially could put the intel stream at risk. Uh, It's been a really valuable intel stream. It helped sort of alert both uh, the U.S. and and the world to the potential threat to planes posed by uh, laptops which led uh, the administration to change some rules regarding bringing laptops onto planes uh, in Europe. You know, potentially it puts lives at risk too, I guess. Was there something about this intelligence that made it particularly sensitive to share with the Russians specifically? Was there a reason why, you know, the intelligence source might not necessarily want the Russians to know? Well, you know, our 
agenda in Syria in some cases overlaps with the Russians. You know, Syria is such a complicated place. So in terms of looking at ISIS as an enemy or the Islamic State as an en enemy, both Russia and the U.S. view the Islamic State as, as an enemy. But despite sort of some relatively narrow areas of con convergence, there's also kind of wide divergence. You know, the uh, Russia supports the Assad regime, which we don't. And so we just we have very different goals um, uh, in Syria. And I think the potential is that the Russians can use this information, know how we're collecting, and it allows them to understand things about what we're doing and trying to achieve, what our partners are doing and trying to achieve that cross-purposes with what the Russians are trying to achieve. So, Greg, let's talk through the different levels of classification just so that we can understand it. Can you just go through kind of the ladder of intensity of classification? There are some things that are confidential or secret, which are not, you know, great state secrets, but they're certainly classified. And in some cases, they're even available in open source, but the, the government, because of the way they've collected them or other things, classifies them as secret. And then there are levels up of top secret, um, top secret SCI. And then, then there's sort of the very, very secret codenamed access secrets, which actually this fell into. And so there, there are sort of different flavors of secrecy. Yeah. So along those lines, do things change in terms of sharing information when intelligence is given to the U.S. by an allied foreign intelligence service? Are there more restrictions on whether a president, for example, can share that information? You know, there aren't more restrictions on whether the president can share it because the president you know, as we've discussed, right. can do what he wants. Often uh, that information comes with sort of caveats and conditions on it. In other words, please don't share this with other allies. Uh, please, you know, keep limited distribution of this. Um, and that was the case with this intelligence. It was intelligence provided by a partner which didn't want it uh, disseminated to sort of other allies that wanted to keep control on it. Right. So it had this distinction that's called no foreign, N-O-F-O-R-N. And that essentially means, like you said, no foreign nationals, can be, you know, can know this information. It should not be released to any non-U.S. citizens besides, of course, the partner whom it came from. Generally, how does a piece of intelligence get that distinction? You know, that's a good question. Um, you know, in some cases, in this case, I think it would have, because it was being shared by a partner, our partner nation would decide how the, that partner wanted it disseminated. Uh, in other cases, you know, it can be made by the, the classifying authority can be the agency that gathers the intelligence. So if it's DOD or the CIA, they'll decide based on the nature of the intelligence, the danger posed to uh, individuals if the intelligence is revealed, um, you know, they'll set the conditions. So then if for some reason the U.S. needs to share that kind of classified information, What's the process for getting approval to then share it with foreign intelligence agencies? I mean, I would assume that the process isn't to just have the president tell the Russians in a private meeting, for example. I mean, I think ideally you, you talk about it with your partner, you know, and you explain to them what's why do you, why do we want to share this information? So in some cases, in this particular case, even before this Oval Office meeting, a sanitized version of, of this intelligence stream was shared with folks because it was a threat to aviation. We shared it with partners and with Russians, the nature of this sort of laptop threat, which posed a threat to planes. And, and you know, it made sense to do it. I think where the president did something that was potentially unwise was he talked about, you know, the nature of the threat, the, the city where the threat was coming from in, in specific terms that, could, that would tip people off as to how we gathered the intelligence. But so, you know, even in sort of sanitized or dumbed down versions, one, one shares it just because you, you don't want planes blowing up. Right. So what do we know about the way that Trump sort of consumes intelligence? Yeah. I don't, 
You know, I don't, that's a really good question. And I, I hesitate to answer because it's sort of been evolving. You know, there hasn't been, as far as I can tell, a clear process. So if you remember during the transition prior to the inauguration, there was a lot of concern about the presidential daily briefing, which is the a very small group intelligence briefing that the president usually gets every morning. There was a lot of concern that uh, in the weeks leading up to the inauguration, President Trump wasn't, or President-elect Trump at that moment, wasn't taking the PDB on a daily basis. Uh, that since changed, my understanding is, where he seems to be taking it almost every day now. But in terms of how he consumes intelligence, it's hard. I know with President Obama, you know, I covered the White House before I was doing national security, and President Obama tended to like to get um, a big fat briefing book for the PDB. He liked to read the PDB before he sat down with his briefers so he could use the session with the briefers to sort of ask questions and to, to have a discussion with his top aides. I think from what we know about President Trump is that he tends not to be a big reader. He tends to like to see things in terms of graphs and pictures and um, learn things through uh, discussion. And so my sense is that he consumes uh, the PDB more in that regard. So let's talk a little bit about how the White House has reacted to this. So Monday night, they sent National Security Advisor H.R. McMaster out to speak to the public. He said, There's nothing that the president takes more seriously than the, the security of the American people. The story that came out tonight, as reported, is false. The president and the foreign minister reviewed a range of common threats to our two countries, including threats to civil aviation. At no time... At no time were intelligence sources or methods discussed. And the president did not disclose any military operations that were not already publicly known. Was that a denial? And how exactly does that explanation hold up against what you reported? Yeah, no, I don't think it was a denial of the story, although it was certainly cast that way by, um, by uh, General McMaster. You know, the story didn't allege that he disclosed sources or methods or military operations. I think the story said that the way he, in which he discussed the threat gave up information from that intelligence stream that could only have, that that potentially sort of compromises that intelligence stream. That was the the concern, that he didn't directly discuss sources and methods, but that a a savvy um, intelligence agency could reverse engineer based on the level of detail that was provided and sort of figure out where it was coming from. Why do you think that the White House chose that approach, you know, sending McMaster out there versus some other ways that it's handled uh, different incidences like sending Sean Spicer or kind of sending its people out to talk to the networks. Why do you think they addressed this one with McMaster? You know, I can't climb into their head. My guess would be, you know, uh, General McMaster is widely respected in Washington, um, you know, on both sides of the both sides of the aisle, both among Republicans and Democrats. Um, He's a sort of a well-known voice in that on national security matters uh, dating back to, you know, the the Iraq war. Uh, And so He's a guy who has a lot of credibility uh, at a moment where I think the administration and particularly Sean Spicer and some of the press people seem to be struggling on the credibility front. So speaking of credibility, Trump tweeted this morning <laughs> and he he seemed to admit in that series of tweets that he did, in fact, reveal some information, though he didn't necessarily say he revealed classified information. But he, he did say, I'm going to read you the tweets. As president, I wanted to share with Russia at an openly scheduled White House meeting, which I have the absolute right to do, facts pertaining to terrorism and airline flight safety humanitarian reasons, plus I want Russia to greatly step up their fight against ISIS and terrorism. So what do you make of that? Is that an admission of something? It feels that way to me. Um, I mean, it's hard to know precisely what he's talking about there. But yeah, it does feel that way. I mean, I guess this is part of the problem with 
communicating in a somewhat unfiltered way via tweets or meeting um, with senior officials without, you know, really sticking to, to talking points provided by sort of the experts, it can potentially get you into trouble. On the plus side, I mean, I think that the president looks at both Twitter and sort of his somewhat unscripted conversations as a way of building rapport with people. I think the previous president, President Obama, wasn't a big, he was a, uh, tended to be a believer in interests more than rapport. You know, countries were going to do what their interest and whether, you know, Vladimir Putin or Angela Merkel personally liked him didn't matter as much as the, the interests of their com- country. I think Trump, coming from more of a business background, I think tends to believe a little bit more in the power of personal rapport. And so I think he believes in being unscripted allows a certain closeness. More news keeps breaking out of the White House over the past few weeks, yet nothing thus far really seems to be moving Republicans to kind of take action. Will this moment be different? Is this kind of a tipping point? I know we've seen Republican Senator Bob Corker suggest that the White House is in a, in a quote, downward spiral. Do you think we will see more of that from Republicans? You know, I don't know. It's uh, predicting tipping points in Washington. It seems like a losing bet a lot of the times, <laughs> especially the last few years, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so... Uh, I'm reluctant to suggest that it is. I mean, it certainly doesn't help. It, it certainly, I think the concern is, you know, that this is an administration and partially because of the, uh, it's a president who, who believes in gut and charisma and personal relationships that there's not a lot of sort of deliberate process and planning. And he's not a guy who seems to enjoy sitting around and sort of being coached up or hewing to a sort of a deliberate process. You know, it seems like that hems him in. You see it just the way he governs is very much reflected in the way he gave speeches on the campaign trail. I I think we're seeing the downsides of that. And I think one of the questions will be whether the last couple of weeks, which seem to have been sort of especially chaotic, caused the White House to think, hey, let's put some, some guardrails on this process so we don't keep careening off the road here. Okay, so then just to sum this up, the big can he do that question here, we answered at the beginning, but just to readdress it, the president can legally share classified information, but it comes at a cost, right? Yeah, I think that's right. Maybe the can he do it question here becomes, you know, can you run a White House without kind of deliberate sort of processes for developing strategy and talking points? He certainly can disclose classified information. I guess the question is, can he continue to govern in this sort of improvisational style without causing himself undue headaches and really undermining his effectiveness as a commander-in-chief. And I guess none of us really know the answer to that quite yet. No, definitely to be determined. All right, great. Greg, thank you so much for coming on the show. You guys can follow Greg Jaffe on Twitter at... Oh, at Greg Jaffe. (laughs) Very easy. That's G-R-E-G-J-A-F-F-E. Or you can follow me, Allison Michaels, at Allison Mikes. As always, if you liked this, share it. Review it on Apple Podcasts, listen to it on Stitcher, Overcast, Radio Public, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks so much for listening. Can He Do That is a team effort here at The Post. It's produced by the indefatigable Carol Alderman with design direction from Rachel Orr and logo art from Loren Boglio. Hey guys, I wanted to let you know that we made two corrections from the original version of this episode. First, Greg originally said that SCI, in reference to top secret SCI, stood for Secure Compartmented Intelligence. 
SCI actually stands for Sensitive Compartmented Information. And second, I misspoke in the original and said that when the president shares classified information, it becomes declassified. The president does have the authority to declassify information, but he can also disclose classified information. And the act of him sharing that information does not, in fact, automatically declassify it. So in this case, what Trump did was a disclosure, not a declassification. 